Welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report for November 25th, 2016. I'm your host, Brian Cardell, and this is a very special Thanksgiving Friday edition of our program. It's your source each week for insightful appellate analysis from California practitioners, jurists, and academics. I certainly hope that however you spent it, your Thanksgiving was a pleasant and enriching one and allowed you some time to enjoy and reflect upon that which matters the most to you, and that perhaps you're tuned in now to reconnect with what matters in the world of appellate jurisprudence. Well, we have a great episode for you today. It'll be a, an encore presentation of two segments aired earlier this fall, one that regards a, a new analytics website that synthesizes and predicts California Supreme Court behavior. Another we'll chat with the editor of a recent book on the life and legacy of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. First, Kirk Jenkins of Cedric LLP will visit to discuss his work on the California Supreme Court Review, a new Cedric blog, synthesizing data from a vast store of California Supreme Court rulings. The blog begun earlier this year looks at items of information from 16 years of high court opinions in order to parse trends and potentially to predict outcomes. The blog has thus far analyzed things such as geographic and area of law origins for Cal Supreme Court petition grants and affirmance and reversal rates for several of the state's appellate districts. Mr. Jenkins will discuss why quantitative analysis is useful for appellate attorneys and what is in store for the firm's new site. Then Scott Dodson, professor of law at UC Hastings, will chat about his recent book on one of the U.S. Supreme Court's longest tenured and most revered members, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Dodson edited and contributed to the book, which features essays from noted legal minds and correspondents, including Nina Totenberg, Dahlia Lithwick, and Neil and Riva Siegel, and which is the first comprehensive treatment of Ginsburg's life and legacy. The book, with both personal anecdotes and doctrinal analyses, explains the outsized impact Ginsburg has made upon constitutional law, particularly in areas of equal protection analysis and gender equality, as well as civil procedure and federal court jurisdiction. Hope you enjoy the show, and we'll move on now to my discussion with Kirk Jenkins. Very happy to welcome to the program now Kirk Jenkins of Sedgwick's Appellate Task Force, who's argued over 200 appellate matters in state and federal courts, and whose bar admission in addition to California includes a number of federal district courts and the U.S. Supreme Court. Mr. Jenkins, welcome to the program. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate the invitation. So we're going to be talking today about a new website that you started in cooperation with Sedgwick, a quantitative analysis of, of the California Supreme Court. But it's just broad strokes. Could you tell me a bit more about what the nature of this website is? Uh, the California Supreme Court Review is our effort to apply new tools from the academic world to the study of appellate decision making. Uh, what's been called big data, the science of predictive analytics, has been growing explosively for years now. Business uses it, businesses use it to predict the most likely buyers and help allocate their advertising budget. Online companies use it to predict what you want to see and are therefore most likely to interact with. Politicians use it to do everything from identifying persuadable voters to predicting who will vote and who won't. Business entities are used to having data analysis as a supplement to help guide their decision-making in, in a ton of different areas. Well, in the California Supreme Court Review, we bring the tools of predictive analytics to studying the modern history of the California Supreme Court. It's based on a database which we've created that includes more than six dozen data points drawn from every one of the 1,600 decisions the court has handed down since 2000. 
as you say, the prevalence of big data and statistical analyses such as these are certainly growing. Was that the, the main inspiration behind the California Supreme Court review? How did it come to be? When did you get this idea? Uh, well, we began with uh, a, a similar project in Illinois about a, a year and a half ago. Um, where it started, uh, it, it occurred to me that appellate lawyers are to a considerable degree in the business of anticipating the views and inclinations of appellate judges and justices, whether it's selecting cases which should or shouldn't be brought to an appellate court to crafting arguments in a way most likely to garner the votes of the majority of the panel. We try to understand the philosophy and the jurisprudence of the judges and the influences on the judges that would cause them to vote one way or another. Well, in 2013, it became more generally known in the appellate bar from a book called The Behavior of Federal Judges. It was written by Judge Richard Posner of the Seventh Circuit and two professors in this area. But the fact is, there's been a considerable scholarly literature for maybe 60 years, which applies empirical techniques, for the most part, sophisticated statistical analysis to exactly these questions that I'm talking about. Well, that's going to become uh, more and more well-known in the, uh, the coming years in the, uh, the legal profession. Every month you see stories in the legal press about a new company marketing legal analytics tools from Lex Machina to Ravel to just last week there was a story about Bloomberg has a, uh, a new set of uh, legal analytics tools. Well, the reason that we started uh, these now two blogs is to demonstrate these techniques in action and just how it can contribute to our being able to do our jobs better as appellate lawyers. Ordinarily, something like that would have just wound up in a law review, but part of the power of blogging and part of our philosophy of blogging is that it's, in a sense, democratized scholarship. So rather than burying this work in a law review, we allow it to play out a few, a few paragraphs at a time week after week, where people can see it, interact with it, and comment on it. You mentioned fairly early on in one of your first blog posts that keeping an eye on trends in the California Supreme Court is particularly important because of the way that the California Supreme Court behaves tends to influence other courts around the country. Could you tell me a bit more about how and why this Supreme Court is, is so influential? Well, I think ultimately the influence of really any court is driven by the quality of the bench. And the uh, California Supreme Court has been uh, has had some of the real legends of the legal world on the court for a lot of years. Uh, people like uh, uh, Chief Justices uh, Philip Gibson and Roger Traynor, uh, Justice Stanley Mosk, uh, uh, Chief Justice uh, Malcolm Lucas. When you have justices like that, you tend to get innovative analysis that people listen to around the country. And there's a long list of cases that have uh, uh, created uh, areas of the doctrine that have spread across the country. Things like uh, the Escola case, where Justice Trainer proposed strict liability, uh, Summers versus Tice, which we all learned in law school, uh, Dillon versus Legg, and uh, negligent infliction of emotional distress. Uh, Roland versus Christian, the, the, uh, the list is endless. And these things have all started in California and uh, uh, spread uh, until they're, they're general U.S. Uh, common law. 
you touched on it a bit already the philosophy undergirding your your site is essentially that you know, there's appellate attorneys out there that are hoping to have any advantage they can when they come into a particular court so it's potentially useful for them to know how courts tend to behave based on a variety of different factors, but that philosophy bumps up a little bit against one that you also mentioned in an earlier blog post, um, formalism, which suggests the idea that such predictive analytics just aren't really applicable in courts of law, that in appeals courts, you know, one particular case comes up with its particular facts, uh, an objective appellate panel applies the law, and then that's it. So could you tell me a bit more about formalism and, and why you think it, it doesn't paint sort of the, the whole picture, why there is room for a site like yours, why predictive analytics could be applied in a judicial setting? Uh, if formalism is what you might call the traditional view of the uh, the nature of judging, the notion that the law, and I put that in quotation marks, is an external thing which judges merely find as opposed to deciding. Hardline formalism would imply that it simply doesn't matter who the judge is. The law is the law, and all judges should come to the same decision on the same set of facts. But the difficulty with formalism is though a lot of people say it, when you get right down to it, nobody really believes it. Because if formalism were a completely adequate explanation of judging, nobody would care who gets appointed to the U.S. Supreme Court or who Governor Brown appoints to the California Supreme Court. It wouldn't matter who the judges were because the law is law. Or consider a hypothetical for the individual practitioners listening. Say you're handling two ca corporate cases or cases for corporate defendants at the same time, and you learn that you're being argued one week apart. One is before a panel of three judges appointed by Pre President Obama, and one before a panel of three judges appointed by President George W. Bush. Now, a strict formalist would have to say that that news has no impact whatsoever. But in fact, I'd venture to guess that news would interest absolutely any appellate lawyer. Now, if formalism were a completely adequate explanation of the way appellate uh, courts make their decisions, academic studies would have concluded that it doesn't matter who appointed the judge. It doesn't matter whether the appellate panel is diverse racially or by gender or how it's mixed, three Democrats, two Democrats to one Republican, or what exactly. But the fact is, there's 60 years worth of rigorous academic studies have, con have concluded that that's just wrong. All that stuff absolutely matters. The principal competing theory to formalism is something called attitudinalism, which was pioneered by Professor Harold Spaeth and Jeffrey Siegel. Uh, ad attitudinalists argue that judges decide cases in line with their political views, whether that's liberal or conservative. A third theory has been pioneered by Judge Richard Posner of the Seventh Circuit, who's another one of the giants of this era area of uh, scholarship, and he calls it realism. He argues that a lot of things influence judicial decision-making beyond just the political philosophy. Uh, it's true, and most people uh, concede that some cases can really only be decided one way, but for the rest of them, he says, there are all kinds of influences. There's the judge's philosophy. There's a natural aversion to dissenting from your colleagues that you're working with in close quarters. And in some courts, the influence of auditioning for higher courts and a host of other things. Both attitudinalism and realism have sparked a ton of empirical and statistical work o o over the last uh, uh, several years. Touching on the, the parameters of your site, when you began this project, you're obviously confronted with a, a pretty daunting store of information. Um, <laughs> how, did, how did you go about determining what um, 
I guess first would be the the period of time that you would analyze, what years of California Supreme Court decisions you would look at, and then how did you determine what data points you would track? I know you, you keep track of things like the number of days between oral argument and, and decisions and, and things like amicus briefs filed on either side. Uh, how, how, how did you go about just figuring out what, what you wanted to track, and were there any particular data points that you find particularly interesting or useful? Well, we decided to begin in the year 2000 because fundamentally this is a tool to inform our appellate practice. It's not really an academic exercise. And at a certain point, when you go far enough back, it becomes more of uh, uh, his- historical interest than uh, something that informs the uh, analysis of the way the court acts today. Uh, if you start in 2000, that encompasses the entire career of five of the current seven justices. Uh, as for the data points, the Supreme Court database that I mentioned a, minute, a moment ago influenced our work because we were interested in seeing how the courts we were studying were similar to and different from the United States Supreme Court. And another major goal was uh, there's a lot of conventional wisdom in the appellate bar that you hear and various controversies about this issue and that. And uh, uh, we all, we picked a lot of uh, variables exclusively to uh, specifically to investigate uh, those kind of controversies. For, for example, everybody talks about how long cases take at the California Supreme Court. So we were interested in tracking lag times. Uh, everything, everyone says that to get review, you need a published decision with a dissent below. So we tracked that. But the bottom line is we're tracking nearly everything. We follow, we extract 82 different data points from every single one of the court's cases. There's a lot of information, it sounds like. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, one in particular area of categorization I'd be curious to ask you about, I know you mentioned in the blog that you also have scored California Supreme and appellate opinions uh, on a binary split of conservative or liberal. Um, how did you go about doing that, especially considering it seems like some judicial opinions might not necessarily necessarily lend themselves to, to being graded on um, such a, a binary dichotomy? And how do you think that sort of data point would, would be useful for your site? Well, it's certainly true that uh, some cases are more challenging than others to uh, uh, put on a, uh, a binary division between uh, conservative and liberal. Uh, nonetheless, that kind of coding is pretty much universal in uh, uh, this area of scholarship. And I think the reason is to fully understand the court, you need to have a sense both of what kind of decisions they're reviewing and what kind of decisions they're producing. Well, we're primarily interested in the uh, the battle between plaintiffs versus defendants. So our basic rule of thumb in doing this coding was that a vote for the defendants is coded as conservative and a vote for the plaintiffs is coded as liberal. And in cases where a party who's usually a defendant is a plaintiff in a particular case, like a declaratory judgment action, uh, we reverse that rule just to maintain the consistent coding. Uh, one example of the kinds of issues that in, that enables us to investigate is assume that, for example, the court, uh, uh, we find that the court had heard a constant level of tort cases since 2010. Well, that's a start, but what kind of tort cases? Are they accepting plaintiff's wins or defense wins from the Court of Appeal, an even mix of both, uh, lopsidedly one or the other? 
Is there a significant difference between the reversal rates for plaintiff's wins or defense wins, and how has that changed over time? When you can do that kind of analysis, that's told you something even more interesting about the court. And we can do that kind of analysis for pretty much any any issue on the civil or criminal side that the court hears. I'd like to get in more specifically to some of those analyses. Your, your blog has been publishing for a few months now. Um, one of the first statistical inquiries you undertook was figuring out the, the sources of appellate jurisdiction in the California Supreme Court. Could, t- could you tell me a bit more about what you were looking at there? Basically, the uh, uh, the variable was um, uh, what was the uh, jurisdictional basis for the uh, the case coming up. What we were actually after was, um, well, in California, all appellate lawyers are very experienced in pursuing uh, writ petitions. But one of the biggest barriers to a writ petition is always the issue of uh, the appellate court is asking itself, do we really have to intervene here? Will this case settle? Will the petitioner eventually win? Is the factual record sufficiently developed for us to make a good decision? And at the Supreme Court level, you often hear talk about whether a case is a good vehicle for an issue. That's the, the term of art. So I was just interested uh, to begin with in how big a fraction of the court's docket writ petitions were. And the answer is fairly big. Uh, the court typically hears between 45 and 55 percent of its docket from final judgments. But in the typical year, traditional writs account for anywhere from 15 to 25 percent. Uh, administrative mandate cases from the administrative agencies is another big factor that you don't see in other states that we picked up through tracking this variable. And another interesting uh, feature that sets the uh, the court apart from other state Supreme Courts is the uh, California Supreme Court frequently hears certified questions from the Ninth Circuit, often one to three a year. Uh, that was a little bit of a surprise. Uh, for example, in the Illinois Supreme Court, where we started this project, uh, certified questions are vastly less common than that. Another area that you looked at was geographic sources, appellate cases coming up to the California Supreme Court. So just where cases physically came from different appellate districts across the state. Um, what uh, what did you find interesting about that analysis? And what did you think it could be useful to see you know, where these cases are coming from? Well, I think you follow that for the same reason you track the, uh, the courts of appeals. Uh, essentially, it's another form of tracking reversal rates. One question you always get when you get a grant of review is how often has the court heard cases from this trial court? Uh, have they ever heard a case from this trial judge? And trial judge is, is one of the variables that we track. Can you infer anything about the court's view of this trial judge? Now, ordinarily, you'd expect the docket to more or less track the distribution of the state's population. And anywhere it diverges from that significantly, either underrepresenting or overrepresenting, that's potentially telling you something about the court's work. Now, we found that Los Angeles County has historically been somewhat overrepresented on the court's docket. Uh, it had 26.4% of the state's population in 2010. But since uh, the year 2000, it's produced 35.7% of the civil docket, 29% of the criminal docket, and 32% of the death penalty docket. So yeah, L.A. is overrepresented. But the interesting thing is most of the big counties are at least somewhat underrepresented on the civil docket if you're assuming that their share of the cases should be similar to their share of the population. San Diego, Orange, Riverside, San Bernardino, and Al- Al- uh, Alameda counties 
are all at least somewhat underrepresented in terms of their share of the civil side. Yeah, that, that theme of Los Angeles being overrepresented seems to come in context outside of the legal world. Interesting to see it as also manifested <laughs> here as well. I know you also undertook a, an analysis of the, the areas of law that the California Supreme Court takes a look at. So in the civil context, if what they look at torts or breach of contract cases, criminal law, things like death penalty, criminal procedure, things like that. Um, right. What were your, the most interesting conclusions from that? inquiry, what uh, what sorts of areas of law has the Supreme Court been looking at more so lately? Does that sort of thing change over time? You obviously are looking at 16 years worth of opinions. Well, I think the content of appellate dockets can tell you a lot about a society. Uh, a famous judge once said that every state Supreme Court completely restates the entirety of the law of the jurisdiction every 20 years. Uh, there was an era when state Supreme Court dockets were dominated by property law and domestic relations. Uh, today, those two areas are comparatively unimportant. Um, the reason that it's important for us to uh, tra track something like that is if you're bringing up a case in an area of law that the court hadn't visited in a while, that's one indication that you might have a somewhat better chance of a grant. On the other hand, if an area declines and stays down year after year, that may suggest that the court simply isn't interested in that subject at this point. Well, tort always dominates the civil docket, but there are several surprises in the uh, the data. The court has been especially active in employment law in recent years. There have even been years uh, uh, since 2010 where employment was the biggest single subject on the uh, the civil docket, and that's really unusual uh, because of the regulatory framework in California. Government and administrative law is a far more important subject than it is in other states. In 2015, for example, uh, it was the most common subject on the civil docket. You mentioned this earlier in our, our conversation that uh, traditional wisdom is to get a, a petition granted before the California Supreme Court. You need to have an opinion below in the, the intermediate appellate court that included a dissent. You analyzed that question as well. Um, what were your conclusions there? Uh, yeah, as you say, there uh, you frequently hear in the appellate bar, uh, uh, unless you've got a dissent below, it's a complete waste of money to petition for uh, a review. But the fact is, that's a vast overstatement, is what we uh, concluded. Uh, it's not at all uncommon for 75% of the court's non-unanimous decisions to come in cases which were unanimous below. Uh, among unanimous decisions, it's not uncommon for 80% or more of the court's cases to be unanimous below. So, in fact, the vast majority of the court's docket is um, uh, cases that there was no dissent below. One thing that dissent has predicted fairly well, though, is dissent at the Supreme Court. Uh, towards the first part of the, uh, this decade, 2010 to 2013, uh, the court was typically running 35 to 45 percent of its non-unanimous decisions were cases that there were dissents below. Now, that's dipped fairly sharply uh, uh, recently, and dissents below have become the uh, less important part of the docket than they have uh, uh, in quite some time. Uh, in 2013, only 8% of the uh, unanimous decisions had dissents below, and it was only 13.3% in 2014 and just under 4 in 2015. So for all the people who uh, 
have ha- have insisted that a dissent is uh, essential. Uh, there are uh, the court goes years at a time when uh, they hear relatively few civil cases that there was a, a dissent below. It must be somewhat interesting and perhaps gratifying if you're undertaking this project if so you find statistical support that that contravenes traditional wisdom. You know, if you only found things that sort of supported what people already thought, then perhaps you think, well, maybe this isn't serving a, a great utility. But it must be interesting when, as it turns out, you can point to your statistics and say, you know, hey, this is actually different than folks generally seem to think. Uh, there are a number of issues where uh, you have those sorts of uh, uh, conclusions. There are a lot of uh, theories, for example, that uh, float around about oral argument. Uh, some people insist that oral argument indicates nothing about the way the court is going. Uh, others say, well, the judges are really talking to each other, they're playing devil's advocate, et cetera, et cetera. Um, uh, we are in the early stages of our study of the California Supreme Court on oral argument, but there's a good bit of scholarship around about uh, uh, oral argument, including a, a huge body of work we've done in Illinois uh, that has proven that that's absolutely not true, that uh, the oral argument is a uh, – if you're listening, is a very clear indication of the direction that the uh, the court is going – the judges are not playing uh, devil's advocate, and uh, when they indicate that they have a question about an area or a problem with an area, uh, there's a fairly good chance, if you don't give a satisfactory answer, that you're going to see that in the opinion. Uh, the conclusion of the scholarship in that area is that uh, uh, the chances of your winning the case drop precipitously as you get more questions than the other side. It's as simple as that. And it's been proven over the course of hundreds and hundreds of oral arguments. Another inquiry that you guys have undertaken looks at the frequency with which the California Supreme Court will have close votes or or votes that are either unanimous or have only one dissent. And you did a, a very comprehensive analysis of, of those sorts of different votes and how they occur in, in different areas of law or how often they occur in different areas what are your findings from from that inquiry? Well, you, you a lot of places you see the uh, the unanimity rate for a court. Say sixty uh, percent of the court's uh, decisions are unanimous, which would be a fairly typical year at the uh, California Supreme Court. But it occurred to us that that means something very different. If that other forty percent are four to three decisions, or if the forty percent are six to one decisions. Uh, plus, it's helpful for studying something that uh, we're interested in, and a lot of the scholars in this area have done a lot of work on, uh, called the panel effect. Um, one of the implications of formalism is that it won't matter a bit to a judge's voting patterns who he or she is sitting with on a panel. Right. But the fact is, there's perhaps 60 years of empirical work from the academic world proving that, in fact, it matters a lot. And there's been a ton of research about other forms of group decision making that comes out with the exact same result. Uh, the uh, party split on the court has uh, recently moved from six Republicans and one Democrat to uh, uh, four to three uh, in favor of the Republican side. And 
the, the expectation is that that doesn't just mean replacing two conservative votes with more liberal ones. If we wind up finding a panel effect in the uh, uh, the court's work, we would expect the conservative judges to justices to begin voting a, in a more liberal way uh, too, and that's one of the reasons that we uh, the, that we follow this statistic. Um, as far as what we're finding, uh, the uh, uh, data from 2008 or so uh, to the present uh, shows considerably less dissent on the civil side than we were seeing from about 2000 to 2007. Uh, for example, in the year 2000, um, only 49% of the court's civil decisions were unanimous. That's extraordinary given the uh, uh, emphasis that appellate courts put on unanimity. Uh, today, unanimity tends to be anywhere from 75 to 85 percent. Uh, four to three cases uh, have, have comprised as much as 11.9 uh, percent of the docket in, for example, 2010. But it's definitely been dropping in the years since then. Uh, six to one cases uh, were nearly 20 percent of the civil docket in 2011 and nearly that in 2012. But that seems to be dropping, too. Uh, we'll see what the data is for, for 2016. Uh, but recently, the court has uh, had um, significantly less uh, uh, disagreement than uh, uh, it has in the, uh, the previous years. Um, one of the interesting subjects that has spawned a lot of the disagreement on the court is arbitration. Uh, arbitration. Uh, only amounts to 4.7% of the civil docket, but since 2010, it's been 21.4% of the total non-unanimous decisions. Uh, tort, the court is uh, the court is fairly uh, fairly much in line with what you'd expect on. But another of the surprises was constitutional law is not really a subject that tends to divide the court. It's uh, just short of 11% of the docket, but uh, a little less than 5% of the uh, divided decisions. I'd be curious to know in what particular ways an appellate attorney would go about applying that that knowledge that you provided with that statistical analysis. So if you have a case, say, that tends to, to split the court, you might think that you have a better chance for a petition review. What, what do things like increased unanimity mean for uh, appellate attorneys? Well, the, uh, the task in um, uh, appellate lawyering is always to uh, assem assemble a majority of the, uh, the court and uh, anything that you can uh, divine from the court's history about uh, both the inclinations of the individual justices and the, uh, uh, the factors that would cause the, uh, uh, the justices to uh, perhaps vote differently than you might expect uh, is, is helpful to uh, uh, helping you uh, craft your argument. You, you want to bring the issues to the court that the court most cares about and uh, that are in line with the way the court makes decisions. Uh, the more quantitative data that you have about the, uh, the court's recent history, uh, and there are, it's 1,600 decisions, so there's a lot of it. Uh, the more you know about how to uh, assemble that kind of uh, argument, because uh, it, it's the basis of the common law that uh, uh, the result is supposed to be determined by what's gone before. You're, you're presently in, in the midst of a, an analysis of different 
appellate districts' affirmance and, and reversal rates, how they fare when their, their cases are called up on appeal before the California Supreme Court. Can you tell me a bit about this, this analysis and any particular findings that you've, you've, you've found so, so far about different appellate districts and their success rates? Well, the first thing you see in the data for the uh, reversal rate is that uh, courts don't really tend to go on long-term losing streaks. Uh, there, there is no court in California that the uh, California Supreme Court has been routinely reversing for a large part of the 16 years that we uh, have date on. Um, lots of the courts have had periods where they'll get pretty bang, bang about five years. But then you see them reel off a string of affirmances. Uh, on the civil side, uh, most of the divisions in the first district have had reversal rates at around the statewide average for most of the period we've looked at. Uh, divisions two and eight of the second district and division two of the fourth uh, stick out as doing quite well on the civil side. Uh, divisions one, four, five, and six of the second district have had periods where they've been getting reversed more often, uh, as has the third district. Over on the criminal side, Division Three of the first district and Divisions Four and Five of the second have done quite well for the most part. And Division Two of the first, six of the second, and one of the fourth have done perhaps a little bit less well over time. Of course, all this comes with a caveat, which I've written about on the uh, uh, the blog. Uh, everyone talks about reversal rates of the uh, intermediate appellate courts, but of course everyone also knows that the court denies the overwhelming majority of petitions for review. So one could argue that the if you calculate the number of cases that a petition is filed, the petition is granted, and the court ultimately hears it on the merits and reverses, in a sense the reversal rate for all of these courts is very, very small. Of all these various analyses that you've undertaken so far, have you found any particularly interesting or perhaps surprising at all? What are some of the, the most important things that you've divined through through your uh, work on the blog so far? Well, it, it, uh, it it's interesting to be looking at the California Supreme Court after having spent a significant amount of time with the Illinois Supreme Court, because the California Supreme Court is really, in a lot of ways, more like the United States Supreme Court than it is other state Supreme Courts. Uh, one example is the number of amicus briefs that the court accepts. Uh, the court averages on the civil side between four and five amicus briefs for every single case. Um, the length of their opinions is another example. Uh, the number of opinions that gets filed is another example where they're more similar to uh, the U.S. Supreme Court than to other state Supreme Courts. And also, as I mentioned earlier, the importance of administrative law. Um, I was surprised by the data we discussed on how comparatively often the court hears unanimous decisions from the Court of Appeal. Before we'd gotten into this analysis, I'd been hearing that for years, that if uh, uh, you don't have a dissent at the Court of Appeal, then it's pretty much over as far as getting Supreme Court review. Uh, another interesting uh, uh, thing that we've uh, uncovered, the um, uh, lag time between the grant of review and oral argument. It turns out that since 2010, the, that lag time has averaged 74 days longer when the court affirms. And that was really a surprise. 
Uh, candidly, I still haven't come up with an, with an explanation for that result, but there is a distinct difference in the average lag time uh, between grant review and oral argument when the court ultimately affirms as opposed to when the court ultimately reverses. But th- uh, this work is always producing interesting insights into the court's processes. Maybe could you tell me a bit about the feedback that you've gotten so far on the site? It's been up for a few months now. Have folks generally been been positive about your product? Uh, are there any maybe formalists out there that question whether there's <laughs> u- utility to this predictive analysis? And is there a split of uh, reaction between judges, uh, jurists, and, and, and attorneys to judges potentially feel like you might be trying to, to peek behind their cards a little bit and, and get a, a better sense of their <laughs> philosophies than, than they would like attorneys to have? <laughs> well, I think the uh, uh, the general reaction among uh, uh, judges, um, uh, well, two things. Anything that enables uh, lawyers to uh, more sharply focus their uh, arguments on what the judges actually care about and the way that appellate decision-making actually happens uh, is making the judge's job easier. Um, there's any number of examples of appellate uh, uh, judges saying that uh, they breathe a sigh of relief when they see an experienced appellate lawyer uh, come up in a case because they know that that lawyer is going to give them what they need to do their job. Uh, and I think that that applies here, too, in, in addition to the fact that one of the real giants of this research uh, that's been doing this for the last several years is a judge himself, which makes it a little bit harder to uh, uh, critique it. Uh, the feedback has been really positive. Um, uh, of course, there's some resistance. Uh, telling a lawyer that uh, sophisticated mathematics are now going to be an important tool in the arsenal um, can come as a bit of a shock to most folks. But I think uh, uh, most people are seeing pretty quickly uh, with the, the spread of data analytics in our industry, just how powerful this approach can be for understanding and predicting the court's decision-making. Yeah, I'm sure there's more than a handful of attorneys that uh, got into the practice of law because they wanted to get away from uh, from, from math and, and science. Uh, <laughs> but it uh, seems like it's found them. Maybe one last one here looking forward. Um, do you have any future analyses that you're particularly excited for? Or any uh, thoughts on uh, growing the blog in different directions uh, in the future? Uh, we're going to take a close look at the court's experience with amicus briefs, since that's one of the, uh, the the real differences between the California Supreme Court and other state Supreme Courts, and try to quantify exactly what effect they have on the court's decision making. Um, over the next few months, we're going to get to uh, analyzing individual justices' records, uh, who writes the most majorities, concurrences, and dissents, and the longest and the shortest ones. Uh, we'll look at voting records in detail, who's voting together, and whether those trends hold across many subjects and all that. Uh, in about six months, as I mentioned earlier, we're going to be turning our attention to analyzing the court's oral argument. Um, finally, finally, in the longer term, uh, we'll be turning to regression modeling of the court's decision making. And uh, uh, we've also been thinking uh, about the possible applications of game theory to uh, understanding appellate decision making. And also there's a lot of potential in text analytics uh, for uh, new insights about appellate decision making. So we'll stay busy.
I'm sure many appellate attorneys will be eager to, to see the results of your, your future analyses as they, as they come out. For now, Mr. Kirk Jenkins of Cedric and creator of the California Supreme Court Review, thanks very much for being on the podcast. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. One more time, that was Kirk Jenkins from Sedgwick LLP chatting about his new site, the California Supreme Court Review. Let's move now to my discussion with Professor Scott Dodson from UC Hastings College of the Law. We're joined now by Professor Scott Dodson of UC Hastings College of the Law. He's an associate dean for research, the Harry and Lillian Hastings Research Chair and Professor of Law who focuses on civil procedure and federal courts. Professor Dodson's a prolific writer as well with publications in Stanford, NYU, and and Pennsylvania Law Reviews, just to name a few. And he's also a contributor to SCOTUS blog and other legal-related blogs. And as well, the editor of the book we'll be discussing today, The Legacy of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Professor Dodson, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Brian. It's really great to be here. Before we get into this book, which I just found was a tremendously fascinating read and somewhat timely to discuss now that we're getting into October term 2016, I believe, Justice Ginsburg's 24th on the court, tell me about how this project came to be, how you conceived it, and what particularly attracts you to Justice Ginsburg. Admittedly, I'm not the most natural person to do a book on Justice Ginsburg. I don't know her. I'm not a court insider. I don't have the background in women's rights or equal protection, the areas for which she's largely known. I'm basically a civil procedure geek uh, who finds interesting all the stuff that most lawyers and legal scholars find pretty boring. But as it turns out, I think Ginsburg is kind of a civil procedure geek, too. She taught the subject when she was a law professor, and I think she appreciates the technical and careful approach that procedure demands. In fact, she has said that she'd write all of the court's opinions on civil procedure if only her colleagues would let her. <laughs> so she ends up writing uh, many, of course, and as a result, my own teaching and writing crossed her opinions uh, time and time again. So I kind of felt a kindred spirit from afar. And of course, I knew of her greater legal legacy and impact. Um, but I also thought there was a more holistic story to be told about someone who has spent an amazing 50-plus years in law, and I was also willing to take on the role of spearheading the project. So I uh, reached out to some of her former clerks and received very positive reactions to the project, and I also wrote to uh, Justice Ginsburg herself with a heads up, and she was extremely gracious about it, and that's pretty much how it came to be. Obviously, a very long career, both as an advocate, professor, and jurist, a career it sounds like you know certainly a decent amount about, but I'm sure there must have been things that you learned throughout this project as different folks contributed essays to the book. What are some of the things that you perhaps didn't know at the start of this project that you came to learn about Justice Ginsburg? Yeah, I knew about her legacy on the court, combating gender discrimination, and of course, I knew about her work in civil procedure, um, but I knew very little about her time before becoming a justice, including some of the personal anecdotes um, that exist in the book. And I knew almost nothing about her opinions in other areas. Um, And learning uh, her accomplishments in um, her time before the court and uh, in some of her opinions that I was not very familiar with revealed uh, something uh, pretty interesting to me, and that's that she's been remarkably consistent across time and across doctrines. Uh, Many Supreme Court justices end up sort of floating from the more conservative side to the more liberal side or vice versa. 
Um, they sometimes switch opinions or uh, doctrines uh, in their career on the Supreme Court. But uh, Justice Ginsburg really has been um, pretty consistent in her approach to a number of different doctrines. And uh, so that was something that I uh, learned when I was doing the editing for the book. One particular consistency, obviously, she's always been known throughout her career as an advocate and a jurist for, for gender equality and for women's rights. Many of your contributors make this point that she was sort of particularly well-suited to be the person to champion that cause and to be a Supreme Court justice to advance it. Could you tell me a bit about some of the impediments that she personally faced in her early career to read about some of them in this book, uh, a generation removed from them? I mean, some of them just sound so anachronistic, very hard to believe there'd be things that a woman would encounter not that long ago. Yeah, uh, you and I must be of the same generation. Um, a couple of examples in which Ginsburg faced gender discrimination firsthand. And, and I have to give great props to Nina Totenberg and Herma Hilkay and Dolly Lithwick for their wonderful chapters detailing some of these events, which generally took place before she became a judge. Uh, some that stand out include her time at Harvard Law School, where she was one of nine women out of a matriculating class of more than a, uh, 500. And uh, the dean held a reception for the nine women. It was, a, it was a tea, no less, and went around the room asking each woman why she thought she deserved a place in the class that otherwise would have gone to a man. I think she still has a bit of a chip on her shoulder from her time at Harvard. So she eventually transferred to Columbia Law School to be with her husband, Marty, who had secured a position at a law firm in New York City. And she graduated first in her class from Columbia, but she was unable to get a judicial clerkship with the Supreme Court or the Second Circuit because of her gender. Um, though one of her professors was able to strong-arm a district judge into hiring her, uh, subject to the promise of a replacement male clerk if she did not work out. So she started her academic career teaching at Rutgers Law School. Um, and one of the earliest experiences there was when the dean explained to her that it was only fair to pay her less than her male colleagues because her husband had a very good job in New York. Um, she also had to hide her second pregnancy while she was uh, teaching at Rutgers until she had been reappointed. Um, and so she experienced the kind of gender discrimination that in, in today's culture we've uh, uh, come to think unthinkable. Uh, and to her credit, I think Ginsburg recognized those experiences as products of the times. Uh, now, that didn't uh, prevent her from remembering them and to dedicating a great part of her life to reversing them and making things uh, easier and fairer for women everywhere. Uh, but I don't think she necessarily harbored uh, great resentment or animosity uh, for those particular experiences. As you say, we've certainly come a long way since then, and to no small measure, I think that can be credited to Justice Ginsburg's work beginning, uh, I believe, when she was an advocate for the ACLU's Women's Rights Project. Though her overall aim in that role with the Women's Rights Project was to advance the situation of women, and I believe Nina Totenberg makes this point in her essay, it's interesting she often would seek out appeals that involved male plaintiffs. What was the strategy behind this? So Ginsburg uh, knew two things. First, she knew that the problem was not just subordination of women, but it was rather the entrenchment of gender roles, roles that could afflict men too. And just as women were not supposed to be breadwinners, uh, you know, men were not supposed to be caregivers. And 
Ginsburg understood that dismantling gender roles for men could be effective in helping dismantle gender roles for women, too. Second, uh, Ginsburg was always an astute legal advocate, and she knew her audience, uh, judges, who were almost uniformly old men. Uh, On the Supreme Court, they were all old men, and they were far more likely to be sympathetic to a man who needed to, say, stay at home to care for his ailing mother than a woman who wanted to be CEO of a major company. So one example um, detailed in the book was a case called Moritz versus Commissioner. And Moritz was a bachelor who had had some expenses caring for his mother. And the tax code at the time allowed a dependent care deduction for caring for a family member, but only if the caregiver was a woman, a widower, or a divorced man. There was no provision for a single man. Moritz, of course, was none of those, so the IRS denied his claim for a deduction of his expenses. So Ginsburg took that case and won on appeal on grounds of gender discrimination. And as a testament to the importance of the win, the government, who was defending the case, uh, appended to its opposition brief a list of all the federal statutes that contained gender differentiations in the law, ostensibly to try to tell the court how disruptive its ruling would be. But Ginsburg couldn't have been happier because that list basically gave her a roadmap of all the laws that she would challenge over the next several years. As you say, it can be equally effective in advancing the cause of gender equality if you challenge laws that reinforce stereotypes, whether those stereotypes apply to men or to women. Yeah, precisely. And of course, she represented many women too, but she was particularly fond of the cases that she could take in which men were the victims of those entrenched gender roles. Maybe we'll get into a, a couple of specific cases. Many of them did involve women, as you say, including the case of Reed versus Reed, which predated some other major cases involving gender equality claims. But Linda Kerber, in your book, discusses this as a particularly important constitutional law advancement, though it doesn't always get so much attention. Yeah, so Reed was a 1971 case Uh, very early in the gender rights uh, movement about a state law that preferenced men over women to be state administrators. Um, And Justice Ginsburg, at the time, it was just uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, she took this case um, on appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court. And the court, for the very first time, ruled that the Equal Protection Clause prohibited gender discrimination. Uh, It was a seminal case that Ginsburg then later used as a um, benchmark for other laws that discriminated and differentiated based on gender. The decision was a unanimous decision from the Supreme Court, uh, which was a huge win for her. I take it then before that time, the Equal Protection Clause had generally been regarded as applying only to laws that discriminated between folks of different races and not genders? That's correct. There had been some sense from the court that it was willing to move the Equal Protection Clause broader than race, but it had not squarely held that until Reed. And then a few years later, another case, Frontiero versus Richardson, put an additional gloss onto the constitutional doctrine in this context. Ginsburg also played a role in that case, correct? Correct. So Frontiero was about a female Air Force lieutenant who was denied military benefits for her husband uh, because he made too much money. 
the law allowed male service members to receive military benefits for their wives, no matter how much the wives earned. So uh, Ginsburg argued this one, too, and she won again at the Supreme Court 8-1. And Frontiero essentially entrenches the holding in Reed that the uh, Equal Protection Clause generally uh, applies to gender differentiations in the law. The, the court didn't go so far as to say that there was any kind of heightened scrutiny applied, uh, but that uh, certain kinds of gender discriminations could be invalidated under the Equal Protection Clause. Sure. Another case that I thought was particularly interesting was brought up by Neil and Riva Siegel in their essay. Uh, in that case, uh, struck for Secretary of Defense, Ginsburg filed a brief before the Supreme Court, which had granted cert in the case, but never actually heard oral argument. Um, also interesting here, at the end of that essay, Justice Ginsburg herself added a note saying how much um, she was pleased to be reminded of that brief and how much it meant to her. Can you tell me a bit more about that case and that brief? Absolutely. Uh, Struck is a great example of Ginsburg's legacy because even though the, a brief didn't result in a Supreme Court opinion that changed doctrine, it represents a lot of what uh, Ginsburg's efforts were geared towards. And it has implications beyond what we typically think of as Equal Protection Clause gender rights. So um, Strzok, it, it did go to the Supreme Court, and uh, Ginsburg did write the brief arguing it, uh, but the Supreme Court ducked it on procedural grounds and didn't reach the merits of the issue. So the case presented the constitutionality of a law that forced women to separate from the military when they became pregnant, or in the alternative, to have an abortion. And uh, the brief that Ginsburg wrote was a tour de force linking gender equality with a woman's right to choose. And so the brief has implications for both gender equality and abortion. It really links those two issues together. Now, Interestingly, Strzok, uh, the woman who was forced into that choice, was a Roman Catholic, and so she refused to have an abortion. What she wanted was to keep the child and her job. And Ginsburg's brief argued that in order to be afforded the status of full citizens in our society, women need to have full autonomy over their life decisions just as men do. In other words, women get the right to have both a job and children. So she really puts both gender equality and gender roles together with a woman's right to choose in the abortion context. And this actually comes up in some of her later abortion decisions. Another instance of things that are sort of hard to conceive that you have, would have to choose between a, a pregnancy and, and your profession. Yeah, and men generally don't have to choose that, at least um, in the kind of society that we live in where entrenched gender roles assume that women will be the caregivers to free men to be able to continue their jobs. Um, you know, I have to say that this has been eroded in substantial part by Justice Ginsburg's uh, efforts, and even the modern court recognizes that uh, those roles should not be entrenched by the law. Now, all, all these different efforts and all these different cases certainly leave this legacy of Justice Ginsburg as an advocate of, of women's rights and, and gender equality. But in one essay by Joan Williams, Ms. Williams mentions that there are certain brands of, of feminism that might be different from Justice Ginsburg's and certain feminists that might, in fact, be critical of her particular variety of it. Could you tell me what Joan Williams is getting at in, in this essay? So I'm not a feminist scholar, uh, and I'll, so I'll leave sort of detailed exploration <laughs> issue to those 
more in the law and those interested in that particular chapter. But the, the basic idea is that uh, Ginsburg doesn't focus on men as the root problem. Uh, for her, the problem are the gender stereotypes that have been ingrained in society. And so in that vein, men can be just as much victims as women. Um, and Ginsburg's efforts have always been to dismantle those gender stereotypes that have dominated society. They've ended up keeping women from making choices that have uh, that have that would otherwise give women opportunities that men take for granted. But those same gender stereotypes have deprived men of choices to make that would give them opportunities to uh, be at home or, or to care for uh, an ailing family member or to take paternity leave. Um, her opinion in Virginia Military Institute, which is probably her most famous opinion, is, um, is indicative because there she concedes that some women, maybe many women, wouldn't want to attend that particular military academy with its um, particular culture and its rigorous standards. But as she wrote in the opinion, the law can't create a blanket rule that bans those women who do want to and who can meet those standards. So her style of feminism is very much on the um, scope of an individual, individual opportunities, individual choices. It's choice and opportunity based rather than an attack on men. Let's address that opinion a little bit more. Obviously, U.S. versus Virginia, the Virginia Military Institute ruling, sort of a watershed moment in gender equality doctrine. Could you tell me just a bit more about that case and, and particularly how Justice Ginsburg came to be its author and the gloss that it added to this area of constitutional law? Yeah, this is probably her most famous case. Uh, it's in all the con law case books as essentially the first case to articulate a heightened scrutiny for gender classifications in the law. The facts were pretty simple. A VMI was an all-male state military institute um, in Virginia. There was another state military institute that was all-female, but it was created kind of in the shadow of VMI uh, because the state recognized that it was um, going to have to offer at least something for women, but it wanted to keep the uh, gender classifications very sharply divided between VMI, uh, which was a very prestigious place, and the uh, female military academy, which was less so. And a woman wanted to attend VMI, but she was rejected based on her gender, and the case went to the Supreme Court. And Ginsburg, in an 8-1 opinion, uh, struck down the gender classification, essentially saying that uh, Virginia uh, couldn't discriminate against women in this way, that the uh, two military institutes were not equal, they were not equal opportunities, uh, and that um, it wasn't right anyway to create these kinds of gender classification barriers because there could be individual women who could meet the standards of VMI and who wanted to be a part of that institute, and there was no other reason for the state to deny them that opportunity. Um, she got the opinion, she wrote the opinion as the opinion's author. I think the Supreme Court papers suggest that the opinion was originally assigned to Justice O'Connor, who then demurred, saying that the opinion rightfully belonged to Justice Ginsburg based on her, essentially her life's work fighting for these kinds of issues. 
So obviously, Justice Ginsburg is writing for the majority in that case, but she had impacts on this area of the law as a dissenter as well, including in a few cases, one of them led better versus Goodyear. Could you tell me particularly what happened there and how that advanced on gender equality? So Lily Ledbetter worked for Goodyear, and she, unknown to her, was being paid less than her similarly situated male counterpart. And she didn't actually know this because um, the salary structures were you know, confidential. They were part of an employee's personnel file. Uh, until she opened her locker one day and there was an anonymous note slipped in that said, you ought to find out because you're being paid less. So she did end up finding out that she was being paid less, and she sued Goodyear under the Equal Pay Act, uh, which prohibits pay disparities based on gender. Um, But because she didn't find out until later, the Supreme Court ruled that the statute doesn't allow uh, a woman to sue for uh, pay disparities that have happened too far back in the past. And the the court's decision on that point prevailed in a 5-4 decision. Ginsburg was in dissent. And she wrote a very forceful dissent, uh, saying that the remedial purpose of the statute was to correct pay disparities in gender, uh, which still persist to this very day. And she read her dissent from the bench in a very powerful uh, statement of how wrong she thought the court was. Um, But she also said that even if the court had been right, it's ultimately up to Congress to be able to fix the law to make it fair, uh, either to overturn the court or to uh, basically restate what Congress had always intended in the first instance. And Congress did so. Uh, Congress passed the Lilly Ledbetter Fair Pay Act. It was the first act that President Obama signed upon assuming the office of the presidency. And I believe Justice Ginsburg has a framed copy of the act in her chambers as one of her greatest successes. And this is a success that didn't take place on the bench. Um, So Ginsburg understands that dissents can be powerful tools, even if you don't win that case. Even at the Supreme Court, um, on statutory matters, there's always recourse to Congress. Certainly not her lone powerful dissent. In other contexts, she's dissented forcefully in recent years uh, in the case of Shelby versus Holder, which had overturned the Voting Rights Act, or at least a, a large portion of it. Uh, she also dissented in the Affordable Care Act case, at least to the point of whether the, the Commerce Clause allowed the individual mandate. Of some of those recent forceful dissents, do you think any will have any particular influence on either Congress or future courts? Some of those cases were constitutional decisions which make it hard for Congress to step in and and redo what uh, the court has said. Um, But I I do think that her dissents in some of those cases are important and meaningful. Um, Her case in Carhartt is a her dissent in Carhartt is a particularly meaningful one. That was a a partial birth abortion case Mm -hmm. in which uh, Justice Kennedy upheld the ban on partial birth abortions. And Kennedy had this kind of odd phrase where he indicated that you know, some women regret having uh, made the decision that they made and that the law was designed in part to protect them from that regret. And uh, Ginsburg, uh, uh, in her dissent, attacked that particular part of Justice Kennedy's decision as uh, quite patronizing. 
um, and that the real power given to women and protection of women was the protection of their right to choose, uh, and that was lost in the decision. So I think um, she has been a very forceful advocate on a court that has tried to scale back Roe versus Wade, um, and Car- the Carhartt dissent that she wrote is a very powerful one. She also dissented in um, the Affordable Care Act case, which is not one of her core areas. It's a Commerce Clause decision. Uh, but she, and for four dissenters, she wrote a, a very scholarly and powerful dissent uh, that is more consistent with the scope of the Commerce Clause based on prior decisions than the majorities. She's always been one that's been very respectful of precedent. And I think here, no one does a better job than she did in the Affordable Care Act case, really paying close attention to precedent and showing where it would lead. In um, Shelby County, uh, which was the Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act case, she wrote a very cogent uh, dissent. She also read it from the bench because it was such an important decision, in which she said that the Voting Rights Act still has a role to play in uh, today's voting procedures, that there are still vestiges of racial discrimination uh, that need remediation and that need oversight. And uh, the court's decision in that case essentially gutted the Voting Rights Act's teeth in enforcing those kinds of norms. And she had a, it wasn't glib, it was in fact quite poignant example where she said, you know, throwing out the Voting Rights Act's protection is like throwing away an umbrella in the middle of a rainstorm because you're no longer getting wet. And uh, that was entirely her point, that we still need the Voting Rights Act's protections. I think those dissents all resonated with people. They may resonate with future courts, too. Touching on a few different areas of the law, for which Justice Ginsburg is perhaps a bit less known, one criminal law and and procedure, her legacy there is somewhat understated and perhaps in some quarters criticized, but two of your contributors, Lisa Griffin and Aziz Huck, write that though her contributions might be a bit less well known, they're also very important. Um, What uh, what are some examples of her, her legacy in this context? Her legacy in the criminal context is more muted than her more well-known areas. And in part, um, that could be because the criminal context is already so crowded with constraints, uh, with both political and legal constraints. Um, however, she, her opinions do tend to, um, to, to be synthesized into a coherent strand, and that is that she tends to focus on procedural rights, and the criminal process. So, for example, she um, wrote an opinion that promoted access to counsel for indigent defendants. Uh, That was a case called Maples. And uh, she wrote a dissent in a case called Connick versus Thompson, which argued that the uh, prosecution's withholding of evidence deprived the defendant of his fair opportunity to present a fair defense in his case. So her efforts in the criminal arena have been largely procedural rather than substantive. They have been ensuring that criminal defendants get a fair shake 
and fair opportunities to present their defenses. If they ultimately lose, I think she's okay with that, um, as long as the uh, process itself has been fair. Speaking of procedure, you write in an essay that you contributed to the work that development in, in civil procedure, doctrine, and, and federal jurisdiction are very big parts of Justice Ginsburg's legacy, or, or will be. This is, of course, no accident, as you mentioned at the top of our interview. The justice was particularly interested in these areas of the law. What, uh, what drew her to them, and what are her most important contributions here? So I think she has a special affinity for civil procedure because Procedure is both technical, so she can really get into the weeds and really learn it and figure out how it works and then apply it, Uh, and it's particularly powerful. Um, You can have a dog of a case and win on the procedure, or you can have a slam dunk case and lose if you don't know the procedure right. And I think she, more than any other justice on the court, understands the uh, real power that procedure holds and the importance of making sure that procedure is fair and right. Um, She taught civil procedure when she was uh, a a new law professor at Rutgers. She was uh, interested in her scholarship. She wrote a seminal piece on the full faith and credit clause. She wrote, she went to Sweden to learn Swedish civil procedure and she wrote the definitive treatise on Swedish uh, civil procedure uh, so I think she got into into it because of those uh, sort of idiosyncrasies of procedure. And she'll have an enduring legacy in the area. I mean, she's, she's written tons of opinions on civil procedure, both majority opinions that have informed uh, the way the doctrines have developed and dissents that may ultimately come back to be majority opinions at some point in the future. She's particularly known for her work on jurisdiction, and particularly personal jurisdiction. And uh, she's been effectively the leader of the court's um, wing on procedure issues and jurisdiction issues. Broadening out beyond the the look at constitutional law, could you tell me some of the ways that Ruth Bader Ginsburg was important to the court and the country just beyond the development of constitutional doctrine? I think she brings a very workmanlike attitude to the court. Even when some other author is writing an opinion, I think she's able to influence that opinion in different ways, either by having that opinion give uh, greater appreciation for the role of precedent uh, or for the role of enabling different law-speaking institutions to have space to be able to contribute to the legal conversation. Um, I think that um, off the court, she's been a hero to millions of people across the nation, uh, probably for her sort of quiet forcefulness. Dolly Lithwick has this really great phrase capturing her personality as a ninja librarian. And, um, And I think that's right that she's sort of the antithesis of the notorious RBG, which has become her avatar in popular media culture. She's always polite and underspoken and uh, yet still forceful and thoughtful and right on many occasions. And I think she's, 
she's led the charge in an area uh, of gender equality that didn't always have many people on her side um, when she began that charge, but that has become essentially a, a position that to oppose would be unthinkable in today's society. So like everybody jumped on the Ginsburg bandwagon eventually, and we're all Ginsburgians now. Um, And so I think that, you know, that kind of pedigree is both captivating and admirable. And I think a lot of people really respect her for it, especially given that she's this sort of quiet, understated, proper person. Obviously, this book is about the legacy of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, but she remains an active member of the court for however long her tenure continues. What do you think are areas she might hope to still refine in the areas of constitutional law? Are there any legal trends she might be worried about or or things she might still hope to to do before she retires her position? I think the abortion doctrine has developed in a way that Ginsburg is skeptical of. Uh, it's, It's been founded around due process, um, and I think that Ginsburg would tend to view it as more of an equal protection issue. Um, in fact, in, in some cases, she has tried to frame it that way, uh, like in the struck brief that she wrote, uh, which is that uh, denying a woman's right to choose denies her the same opportunities to reach full citizenship stature. Um, So I think she would uh, like to couch abortion jurisprudence in a different constitutional vantage point than what has developed. We'll see if she can uh, manage to sway the other justices to do so in the future. Um, Similarly, I'd say she has the same perspective with gay rights. Those cases have also sort of been uh, grounded in due process rather than equal protection. And here I think she's actually had a little bit more success changing the focus. The, the same-sex marriage opinion, Obergefell, which was written by Justice Kennedy, is still grounded in due process, but it gives some reference uh, to the path-marking decisions Ginsburg achieved in women's rights and based on equal protection. And I think that, you know, had Ginsburg written the opinion, she might have written it somewhat differently and emphasized those uh, equal protection strands more heavily. But I'm confident that uh, she helped make those decisions appear uh, in the in the Kennedy opinion. And um, perhaps in a future case, she will try to tease that out and, and make it more of a forefront uh, that gay rights is really about equal protection as much as it is about uh, due process. Now, she'll always be remembered for VMI and the cases that she won at the ACLU. She'll be remembered for her procedure cases, of course, and uh, probably some of her more enduring dissents like Ledbetter and Shelby County and Carhartt. Um, and of course, she'll be remembered for sort of her more outsized uh, personalities and uh, the following that she's gained off the court. Uh, but but I, I hope that people end up viewing her less as sort of the notorious RBG and more as simply Justice Ginsburg. Um, it's in that role that she has made the biggest difference and where she will have had the most enduring impact. 
I think your book goes a long way to to achieve that end. It really humanizes her and presents her as a person um, more than, than an icon. It was certainly an enjoyable read. Professor Scott Dodson, congratulations again on the book, and thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks, Brian. It was a pleasure. And with that, our program for Thanksgiving Friday, November 25th, 2016, is complete. I hope you enjoyed this week's Encore show. I look forward to speaking to you next Friday. I'm Brian Cardow. Have a great week. <laughs>